Well, special thanks to our worship, our praise team this morning. Every week you guys do a fantastic job, but today especially I thought um, just a great time of praising our Lord and lifting up God's name with uh, uh, biblical songs. And uh, props to all the fathers out there. Uh, Happy Father's Day. And all of us, to our fathers, I trust that we will all have spent some portion of this weekend spending time with our parents, particularly our fathers, and thanking God for them. Now, just one quick announcement before we get to our study. Um, This is our, um, we have a monthly communion service following our morning service, and it is for believers only. It is for those who profess to follow Christ and show fruits in keeping with that genuine faith. And if you are a Christian, we extend our right hand of fellowship to you. We invite you to join with us to remember our Lord and to, to remember our unity that we have in Christ. It might be a first time visitor for us, but if you are a Christian, you are our brother or sister in Christ. There's a unity that exists between us that cannot be broken or severed that was not created by man and we want to rejoice in that unity this afternoon. If you want to, we will have a meeting to, to my right, right after service, where we go over our communion service, we go over the gospel, where we just express um, our invitation to you and hear your testimony so that we might um, join together in communion this day. So if you are a believer, please join us. Well, let's get to our study for this morning. <clears throat> and if you looked at your bulletin and saw the title, that is not a misprint. Yes, I believe we're the only church in all of America on Father's Day studying Titus 2, marks of a godly younger woman. Now, how did this happen? People that have been here before know what happened. If you're a newcomer, I'll give you a brief historical context. We're studying through the Gospel of John, doing really well. John chapter 9, we just finished, and we're making, you know, progress with the Gospel of John. Now, we hit Mother's Day, and I'm thinking, you know what? That's a special day. We want to preach on women. What's a great text on women? Proverbs 31. But I taught that last year. So what should I teach this year? Titus chapter 2. So I chose to teach on Titus 2, but in my study, and there is that adventure, expository preaching, adventure of studying the Word of God. You never know how, what's going to come out. And I realized I can't bypass verse 1. I can't bypass this teaching on older men just to teach on women. So on Mother's Day of all things, we studied the marks of a godly older man. That was a very interesting Mother's Day, if you remember. And then I took a few weeks off, and we're back here, and it's Father's Day. And now we're on verse 4 and verse 5. We studied uh, older women a few weeks ago. Now we're on younger women. So... That is how we have come to study younger women. But you know, in a way, it is God's gift to all the husbands here, to all the fathers, because the passage today is loving your husbands. So the sermon might not be towards husbands, but all the fathers, but we will benefit the most, I believe, from this teaching. If your wife, I don't know, if your wife's not here, you want to get her a copy of this teaching, because you will benefit, I believe, greatly from it. Now, in Titus chapter 2, we have God's instructions to different categories of people in the church. And Paul categorizes all the people in the church into four categories. Very simple. Older men, younger men. Older women, younger women. 
Now, in our study thus far, we've structured our study of, of chapter 2 around four words. Somewhat of a review for us. The first word is contrast. Each word begins with a C. The first word is contrast. Look with me to chapter 2, verse 1. The first four words of chapter 2, Paul writes to Titus. Uh, and he's uh, 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 an apostolic uh, uh, emissary ministering in the church of the island of Crete. And he tells him, but as for you. Now with that first conjunction, we see that Paul is making a contrast between Titus and a group of people in the church. And who is who, who are these people? Verse 16, these are false teachers. Paul describes them this way in chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. Their lives do not fit their profession. They profess to know God, but look at their deeds. They are detestable. They are disobedient. They are unfit for any good work. He's saying they're abominable. abominable. They're objects of disgust. In fact, they're disobedient to the Word of God. Therefore, they're unfit adakimas. It's a construction term. This boulder is no good. We shouldn't use this to build this building because this, this rock or this, this material is, is, doesn't fit. It's not worthy. It doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't pass the st- standards. Must be set aside, rejected, cast away. These false teachers have been, are to be set aside. Hadakimas. Because of their lives. Therefore, they bring no benefit to the church. And Paul is saying, instead of these men, Titus, but you. And he makes a contrast. And that's how he starts chapter 2. And the second word is, he commands Titus. And the command is, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now that word teach is a trans, not a translation, it's an interpretation because the Greek word there is not didache, which is teach. It's not caruso, which is preach. The Greek word is laleo, which means speak. The New American Standard Version has a better rendering. What Paul is saying is, Titus, always be talking about the lifestyle that fits right doctrine. This is so important, Titus, that you are to be immersed in talking about this. It must not be confined just to the pulpit. When you're having meals with your church people, when you're visiting them, when you're playing sports with them, when you're out in the town with shopping and you meet a believer, you are always to be talking about right life. And he talks and he says here, speak what accords with sound doctrine. Accord, the Greek word is prepo, which means to fit. The perfect fit, two joineries coming together. And Paul is saying that there is only one kind of life that fits right doctrine, that is right life. You must teach this, Paul. Uh, Timothy, uh, Titus, right? <laughs> I got them all, didn't I? Paul is teaching Titus, you must teach the sound life. Application here. Not about profundity of doctrine or theology. He's talking about the nitty gritty getting into people's lives, getting into their kitchen, and talking about the lifestyle that fits a sound theology. And then we went to the third, third word, which is conclusion. Conclusion. The purpose of these commands. Why is it so important that Christians have the lifestyle that brings integrity to the Word of God? Why is that so important? 
And it's found in verse 5, verse 8, and verse 10. And they are powerful. If you and I do not live according to the Word of God, the negative effects are not towards us. It's against the Word of God. It's against God Himself. Verse 5, So that the Word of God may not be reviled, dishonored, maligned. If you and I live unholy lives, God's Word gets denigrated. God's Word gets rejected. God's Word gets set aside. In fact, the literal word here is blasphemo. God's Word is blasphemed. Isn't it amazing? The direct correlation with our lives and the Word of God and the side of the world? Direct correlation. When we live according to the Word of God, and God's Word is honored. Hey, God's Word is true. God's Word is inerrant. God's Word is sufficient. It's infallible. God is true. But when professing Christians don't, then God's Word, their estimation of God's Word is lowered. Right? The world doesn't judge our theology. They don't judge our doctrine, but they judge our life. They judge us by our behavior. For non-Christians, the issue is not, is the Bible true? The issue is, are Christians hypocrites? Are Christians consistent with the Scriptures? They judge the validity of the Bible by our behavior. They judge whether Scripture is really true, really powerful, really life-changing, by whether it changes our lives. That's what Paul is saying. Titus is so important. Talk about this all the time. Secondly, verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Meaning, there might be your family members who hate God, who are non-Christians, who hate the church, who hate Christianity. And they want to direct that attack against you, but because your life is so above reproach. The way you conduct your family, the way you conduct your finances, the way you, how you're diligent at work, they are ashamed. The literal, literal Greek rendering is, they, they blush, their faces turn red, because your life outshines theirs. They have nothing bad to say about you. That's the kind of life believers are to lead. Because unbelievers are watching us. And third reason, third conclusion is verse 10. In order that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. That's, that's awesome. That's beautiful. Right? That, we, that we preach our most favorite FOF class, right? attributes of God. We preach who God is by our lives. And we adorn this truth that God is our Savior by our lives. How? Because it is clear God has saved us from sin. God has saved us, delivered us, redeemed us, cast our sins aside. Though we are sinful, though we sin, we are quick to confess, quick to repent, quick to acknowledge our sinfulness and reveal to the world that God is our Savior because we have been saved from sin. So in our previous studies, we looked at these three C's, the contrast, the command, the conclusion, for the past several weeks in our study in Titus 2, we've been involved with the fourth word, and that is character. That is character. Six areas. Several weeks ago, we looked at older men. Six characteristics of a godly older man. They are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, sound in faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness. These are six marks that describe 
a godly older man. Characteristics that all of us, these are marks of maturity, men, women, regardless. How old, how young, all of us should be aspiring for. Because they are marks of maturity. Then we looked at Paul's instructions concerning older women in the church. And you know, like, in this study, I, I saw the power of God's word. We studied older women several weeks ago. And a father of one of our young people came out to service and said he was so blessed by the teaching. It convicted him. It rebuked him. It taught him. Even though it was directed towards older women. So the power of God's word, that's right. Even though it's directed towards women or directed towards men, it's applicable to everyone. And we saw the three characteristics of godly older women in verse 3. They are reverent in their behavior. They are priest-like. They are devout. They are holy. They are God-pleasers by their lives. Verse 3, second characteristic, they are not slanderers. They don't use words to maliciously hurt others, spread rumor and gossip, evil speaking. Thirdly, they are not slaves to wine. They are not drunkards. And if you remember, we really pleaded with the older women of our church. And all women, you're older someone else the imperative of your lives for you there are two things that are at stake the word of God and the future women of Cornerstone because Paul says Titus you can't teach the younger women you can't train the younger women that is the responsibility of older women so Paul tells Titus to teach and train, teach the older women to train the younger women. And so there's a twofold significance to the lives of older women. The Word of God and the future generation of women in the church. I reiterate that, that plea for the women of our church to, to live lives that are impeccable, to live lives that are above reproach, but at the same time, invest in younger women and ministering to them to pull double duty for the sake of the future women to come. Now, this brings us to verse 4. And we'll study younger women for at least a few weeks. This week and next week, maybe one more week on top of that. Next week is the one I'm going to stir the pot a little bit. Next week's the controversial ones. If you guys like controversy, come back next week. All right, there's going to be some fireworks here. Today, it's more, it's more I think, encouraging, to say the least. Oh, verse 4, let's look at younger women. You know, we had, I think, 40 women go to Martha Peace's conference on Titus to Women two weeks ago. And after that, if, if I were to take a survey uh, among all the women here and, and ask you, guys, gals, What's the number one characteristic of a godly woman? What's the number one? I think some answers that I would get is maybe wise. She's just wise. She's just, I don't know, wise, right? How do you, how do you describe that? She's wise. Secondly, she's disciplined. Uh, or another one else would say disciplined. She wakes up at 5 and she goes to sleep at 3 a.m. You know, she sleeps two hours and she's just disciplined, right? Another person that she's a, she's a quiet and gentle spirit, right? You can barely hear her speak. She's so quiet, <laughs> so gentle. Or her home is neat and tidy, 
Like Martha Stewart, watch out, you know. Or home is just tight, right? Um, another one might be she dresses modestly. I mean, just right, all clothes, right? Just <laughs> modest, right? Or her children are just perfect dolls, right? The children obey immediately, instantly, every time, no matter what. These are, I'll give these answers. You know what Paul says in Titus 2? The number one trait of a godly younger woman is she loves her husband. It's an unexpected one, isn't it? She loves her husband. Verse 4. Train the young women to love their husbands. Paul places here before loving children. Before being self-controlled, being sensible. Before being pure. Before being diligent at home. Before being kind. Before even submissive to their own husbands. Paul says, the first thing, the most important thing, for younger women, younger wives, love their husbands. We'll spend the rest of our time just looking at this point. Wives loving their husbands. Sermon was like kind of laughing this week. You're going to preach a whole sermon on loving your husband? You're like preaching like, sir, love me or something, right? Because <laughs> it's a best interest for me to preach this passage. Well, that's not the reason. It's because it's number one on the list of Paul. Again, it's directly pointed to wives, but it is relevant to all believers if you're a single woman, put their parents. Father's Day, so put your father there. Right? Love your father. Men, same thing. Right? Put wives there if you're married. If you're not, put your parents or your father there. Right? It is relevant to all. Because Paul puts it in the position of the priority position, the number one position, it tells us three things. First of all, it tells us the priority of the home for the Christian. Priority of the home for the Christian. It is noteworthy that the list of characteristics for younger women begins with love for husband and children. Meaning that the first characteristic of a godly young woman is love that is directed towards her home. Before ministry, before church, before career, before friends... Her primary love, the priority of her love is directed where? Towards her husband. Priority of the home. Let me just refer you to 1 Timothy 5, 4. Maybe read it this week. Paul talking about widows. He said, they should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice. Meaning children of widows. They should learn to put their religion into practice. By what? By caring for their own family. Paul says the first thing Christians ought to learn, first thing all young people must learn is that Christianity starts at home. Starts by caring for your own family first. Godliness must start at home. Young people, young women, young wives, you must learn the priority of the home, priority of the family. The first place where you put faith into practice is not evangelism, it's not ministry in the church. But it's by caring for your own family. It is a must. It is not optional. 
it, this priority at home must not be neglected. Again, the conclusion that the word of God may not be reviled. The world reviles a Christian woman who neglects her husband because of church. The world, the word of God gets blasphemed when a young wife, in the name of missions and evangelism and ministry, immerses herself in the service of the church while neglecting her home. We see so many examples of that. Wives getting excited about scripture, prayer, ministry, and they neglect their home. That must not be. The first priority is the home. And in the home, it teaches us, secondly, priority the husband. Right? So for a young, young wife, priority is the home. And in the home, her priority is who? Her own husband. Above her career, above her parents, above her church, ministry, and even above their children. Let me ask you this, guys. Uh, mothers here, if your child and your husband was drowning, and you could only save one, you could only save one. If you don't have children, your husband's drowning, and maybe your dad's drowning, your mom's drowning, your your pastor is drowning, I don't know, right? Your boss, whatever you care about, your car is drowning. Who would you save first, right? Paul says, you got to save the husband. Is that radical? Priority is towards the husband. We'll study this next week. If you love your child, and, and if you really love your child, you will love your husband first. That is loving your child. We'll look at that next week. Priority the husband and the family. Thirdly, we see the priority of biblical love for the husband. Priority of biblical love for the husband. When Paul says, train young women to love their husbands, we need to understand the word that Paul uses, phileo, is a biblical love, not the worldly love that we think about. There are two wrong views of love towards husbands. The first view is love, seeing love as an emotional love, love as romance. There are, we have several uh, newlyweds here, and some of these wives will be thinking, you know what, James, this sermon is not for me. I don't need to listen to this, because I love my husband, right? I mean, I love him. I don't struggle with this. I'm, in, I'm so in love with my husband. He's the apple of my eye. I think about him when I wake up, when I go to sleep. Man, I don't have to be trained in this. Well, first of all, that's going to be over real soon, right? Just hold on. Okay, we'll talk a year from now and see where you're at. And secondly, you have a wrong understanding of love because biblical love does not come naturally. Biblical love does not come naturally. If it did, then you don't need, we wouldn't need trained. We wouldn't need to be trained to love, right? Why do you need... So you don't need to train someone to be selfish. You don't need to train somebody to lie or steal or cheat or to be prideful. It comes naturally to us. But to biblically love someone, it's unnatural because we're sinners. So a wrong view of love hinders a right understanding of text, the priority of not just love for the husband, but biblical love. Second wrong view of, of love is, you don't know my husband. I don't love my husband. I can't love my husband. Nobody can love my husband. My husband is not lovable. Right? 
I don't love him anymore. I've lost that love. I don't care for him anymore. Right? The feeling is gone. It's been gone. Nothing in my heart for him. Right? Well, my response to you is that that's disobedience. Right? That's clear disobedience to the Word of God. Because love is not an emotion. Love is a decision. If you don't love your husband as you ought to today, if you don't love your husband as you ought to today, then you need to train yourself to love your husband. You need to grab the nearest older godly woman, sit her down and say, you know, will you train me to rightly love, biblically love my own husband? You need to train yourself. Be trained. The issue is obedience. It is a sin to disobey this command. It is a sin not to love your husband. It is a sin not to love him sacrificially. Love of will. Love of deep commitment. Yes, biblical love is tough. I mean, it takes work. It takes dying to oneself. It takes self-sacrifice. Biblical love takes courage. But God says you must obey. So to look at love, to look at how wives can, and wives are to biblically love their husbands, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. And we'll look at one of the greatly loved passages in the New Testament. Paul's description of true biblical love, God-centered love. Gordon Fee says that it is one of Paul's finest moments when he writes and pens 1 Corinthians 13. In verses 1, 2, and 3, he talks about the preciousness, the value, the inherent value of love. In 4 through 8, he uses 14 verbs, verbs to describe love. Let's look at verse 1. First of all, the apostle begins in verse 1 by stating that Spiritual gifts are meaningless without love. Spiritual gifts are meaningless without love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. These Corinthians took great pride in their gifts. How they excelled in the gift of tongues. Paul's response, he's speaking hyperbolically. But he's saying if he was to speak in tongues of men and of angels, but if he did not have love, he would be a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. Meaning that it would be nothing. It would be just loud noise. It would be meaningless. It would have no value before God. Spiritual gifts without love has no profit, no benefit. So... Look at verse 1. Maybe you could insert this phrase here. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love towards my husband, towards my parents, towards my siblings, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2 tells us that knowledge of the Bible and giftedness in teaching are rendered meaningless without love. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, sweet affection for my husband or children, I am nothing. 
Paul's telling us that the true value of a member in the church is not his knowledge, it's not his faith, it's not his degrees or accomplishments. The true value is defined by his love for others. Likewise for a wife. True valuable wife is not her income, her skills, her knowledge of the Bible, how many books she's read, but it's by her love for her husband. Right? You know, a few weeks ago, a guy came to me after the sermon, and he was really encouraging, saying, wow, um, you're good at preaching. And my response was, I don't really care, really. That's not my aspiration in life, to be a good speaker, to know a lot, to be a slick communicator. My aspiration is to be a good Christian. That's what, that's my struggle in life. That's what Paul is, I believe, saying. It's not about knowing all mysteries and knowledge. It's about love. Verse 3, Paul is telling us that personal sacrifice and devotion for ministry is meaningless without love. Look at this. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but if I have not love, first for my family, my parents, I gain nothing. It is all for naught. The Christian who is unloving, especially at home, to those who are closest to her, it amounts to nothing. Love is the foundational virtue for the Christian. Without it, everything is devoid of value. And starting in verse 4, Paul launches into a series of 14 verbs that describe God-centered love. Listen, church, for Paul, love is not an idea. For Paul, love is not a motivating factor for behavior. For Paul, love is not emotion. It is not feeling. For Paul, it is action. For Paul, love is behavior. These 14 descriptions, though in the English are found, they're adjectives. In the Greek, they're all verbs. Paul breaks it down into smaller parts so that we can, we can rightly understand love. But to summarize it, Paul is saying love is characterized by what you do, not what you say, not what you feel. You are what you do. You are your behavior. You are your actions. Let's go through the time that we have these 14 verbs. First of all, love is patient. Love acts patiently. This word is common in the New Testament. It is used almost exclusively of being patient with people rather than with circumstances or events. This teaches us that we are to be patient with people and endure through circumstances. We devalue people if we are enduring them. If you're just enduring your husband, just persevering, just holding on because over your children or fellow believers, you're not loving them. That's not love. We are patient with one another. We forbear them. KJV says, we suffer long for and with them. Chrysostom, the early church father said, it is a word which is used of the man who was wronged. 
and who has the power to avenge himself, but will not do it, end quote. A virtue that was unique to Christianity at the time. In the Greek world, a person who sacrificed themselves, a person who was not avenging, a person who was patient and endure, or patient with others, was considered weak, without strength. Aristotle taught that the Greek virtue was to refuse to tolerate insult or injury. That he taught that it was virtuous to retaliate for the slightest offense, much like our culture today. But Christians are called to the opposite. In interpersonal relationships, Christians are called to have greatest concern for others, not for themselves. Christians are called in love to Romans twelve seventeen, not to pay back evil for evil. Matthew 5.39, in interpersonal relationships, when someone slaps you on the right cheek, Christians are to, in love, turn the other cheek. Paul says that that characterized his own heart, 2 Corinthians 6.6, when he was so betrayed, so hurt by the Corinthian church, his heart was full of patience towards them. Ephesians 4.2, therefore Paul says it should characterize every Christian Isn't that beautiful? That the first quality of love is the verb patience. Second is that love is kind. Patience is is the passive response to your husband, someone in your family, someone in the church. Kindness is the active response. Kindness means to be useful to be gracious, to be serving. It not only feels generous, it is generous. You lavish. The idea of lavishing what they don't deserve, you're kind to them. Next, love does not envy. Love and jealousy are mutually exclusive. Where one is, the other cannot be. The sense is, love does not envy others. Happiness, love, delight in their welfare. Envy is to feel discontent when someone has something that you don't have. Someone excels in some way. Someone is superior. No. Love does not envy. Jealousy has two forms. One form says, I want what that other person has. Maybe for a wife, he has a better car, I want the better car. He has more free time, I want more free time. I want better stuff than him. A worst kind of jealousy is, I want that person not to have what they have. It's not just I don't have what they have, I want that person not to have what that person uh, possesses. The best illustration is the two, two mothers with Solomon. One, one mom, her baby died. She switched the baby in the middle of the night. They went to Solomon. What should we do? Solomon says, well, cut the baby in half. Kill the baby and, and split between these two moms. The real mom said, no, let the child live. We'll give it over to her. I'll give my baby over to her. The sinful mom, what does she say? The jealous mom. 
No, cut the baby in half. Let, may the baby die. Right? Jealousy. Right? She rather that the other mom not have her own child because of jealousy. Love does not envy. Next, love does not boast. The verb, it's middle voice, meaning love does not boast about himself or herself. If you love your husband, you don't talk conceitedly in front of him. You don't parade your accomplishments around him. You don't compete. You don't measure. You don't assert your superiority in any way. You don't brag. Bragging is the other side of jealousy. Of of building yourself up. Or you love to talk about your favorite topic, and which is yourself. Love does not brag. Love does not boast. Next one, love is not arrogant. It's a verb. Love is not filled with pride. The Greek word is phusios. It's the idea of being puffed up, being filled with your own mind, being prideful, being arrogant. It's it's so full of yourself that's ready to burst. Ready to just blow up because you're so prideful. Those are, it's a, it's a contradictory to true love. Love is not rude. King James says, love does not behave unseemly. Its idea of love is not insensitive. Love is not inconsiderate. It is not crude. It doesn't offend others unintentionally nor intentionally because you fail to think before you speak or act. Love is not rude in the sense of it is not ungracious. It is not unloving in that sense. Love is thoughtful. Love is caring. The verb means in a sense to act shamefully. To act disgracefully. Love does not act that way. Verse, next one, verse 5. Love does not insist its own way. And love is not selfish. It does not seek one's own happiness over against others. As Christians, we are to seek the good of others. Not our own good. Lemsky says, quote, the root evil of fallen human nature is in wanting to have its own way. Cure selfishness and you have just replanted the Garden of Eden. End quote. Let me tell you this. I'm speaking to wives today, so I'll just point it towards wives. But when a wife loves her husband, when a wife loves her family, everything but God and His Word is preference. Everything but God and His Word is preference. Right? Color of the carpet. Right? Where to live. Right? Movies to see. Food to eat. Right? How many times we go out during the week. How we spend our money. What we do with our time. All of that is preference. There is no insistence. We have to do this. She is stubborn concerning God and obedience to His Word. But beyond that, she is seeking the good of others. Her heart's delight 
is to love her husband, love her family. Next one, love is not irritable. You know, NIV and NAS has good translations. NIV says it is not easily angered. NAS is not easily provoked. You know, I guess it's the, you know, movie that's coming out soon. What are you guys thinking of? That Incredible Hulk, right? You get a little angry, you turn into this green monster, (laughs) destroy everything. Well, if you love, you don't turn into the Incredible Hulk. You're not, you're not easily, you're not irritated, you're not provoked to anger. A sudden outburst of emotion or action. When, it's like the Lord, when God's glory was dishonored, He got angry, righteous anger. John chapter 2, He cleansed the temple. He expelled the money changers, sellers of animals, whip of cords, using physical violence. He, he removed physically people from the temple when God's honor was at stake. But when people vilified him, attacked him, called him names, called him all sorts of crude, uh, vicious things, he never got angry. He never. He never provoked him to anger. Same thing with Paul. When Paul saw heresy, immorality, misuse of spiritual gifts, he was provoked. He was stirred up within him. Acts 17, 16 says, when Paul was in Athens and he saw all these false idols, it says that same word, his spirit was provoked with him. A righteous indignation was stirred up in him when God was not worshipped. But when people beat him, accuse him of immorality, of false living, of, of greed, of stealing money, Paul did not get angry. Love is not provoked to anger because in self-defense or retaliation. Right. Next one, love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. Again, NIV and ASB seems to have a better rendering here. It keeps no record of wrongs. NAS does not take into account a wrong suffered. The Greek word is logizomai. It is a bookkeeping term that means to calculate when figuring an entry into a ledger, putting into a permanent record that can be consulted later when needed. It is the idea of keeping track of what your spouse has done wrong. And you store it in the permanent memory banks. You know what? I've got to remember this because I've got to use this against him later on. Man, you know, when he brings that up, I've got to bring this up. I've got to remember. This is a good one. When he did this, he said this, he's behaved in this way, I've got to keep a record. I must never forget this. And I'll bring it up at the most opportune time. That is not love. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love keeps short accounts. Right? Short accounts. Love forgives and it is gone. It is gone. I don't remember. It's erased. I have no record of it. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. 
Love does not delight in any harm, any evil that is done, any, any wrong that is done, but rejoices in truth. Right, the best illustration that I come with is Paul in jail and in Philippi. He says these people are preaching the gospel for wrong motivations. They're preaching the gospel to cause me harm. They know I'm in prison for the gospel, and more they preach, more heat comes upon me, more accusation, more persecution. And they're doing it for wrong reasons. But Paul rejoices at truth. But Paul says, but I rejoice that the gospel is preached. Showing what love is. Love believes all things. Lack of time, we'll go through the last four. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Love bears the unbearable. It believes the unbelievable. It hopes when the situation is hopeless. It endures when anything less than love would give up. It's not, it's not beautiful. It's not great. Isn't that how younger women ought to love their, their husbands? After love bears, it believes. After it believes, it hopes. After it hopes, it simply endures. And then finally in verse 8, love never ends. You can never love enough. There is no limit to love. Well, I believe I fulfilled the role of Titus at Cornerstone. I have and will continue, but I have taught the older women. It is a job now. The sermon is not over. The sermon is not over. <laughs> Don't get scared. The sermon is over. But <laughs> what I'm saying is, the sermon is not over in the sense that it's older women's responsibility now to take this teaching, doctrine, theology, and train younger women. This disciple them, mentor them. Teach them to do step by step, to love in this way their own husbands. Love in this way their own fathers. Love in this way one another by exemplifying that love and by reproducing it in other women. And maybe, uh, no, definitely, older, older men too, older husbands here, we must be exemplifying such love towards our wives and training younger husbands to love their wives, love their parents, love their siblings, love fellow Christians in like manner. In that way, may the sermon be never be over in the life of Cornerstone. Let's pray. Oh, our great Father, we, the Word of God gives us hope. The Word of God gives us so much hope and strength and encouragement because you demonstrated that love for us. We see that love in a list in 1 Corinthians 13, but we also see that love in the person of Jesus Christ. By you sending your only Son to die for unworthy sinners as us, you demonstrate the love that is described here in 1 Corinthians 13. Lord, as we follow in your footsteps, may we follow in doctrine, but may we follow 
also in life and in life supremely may we follow in the way of love by loving our families, loving fellow believers, loving the world as you loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.